pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver, as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all those, these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one of the pillars was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, all of the bronze were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And it all goes to Babylon. And so that's the context of Psalm 74. Let's now give, turn there to Psalm 74. This is entitled Psalm of Asaph. Asaph would have no longer have been alive uh, when Jerusalem was sacked. And so it's believed that the choir of the temple singers uh, took this name upon themselves um, and that one of them then wrote this psalm. Psalm 74. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own sign for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all of its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet my God... Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. So far the reading God's word. Let's ask for his blessing. O God in heaven, we pray that these words would 
speak to us as your word, and that we would hear your voice, uh, be convinced of your truth, and Lord, that our lives would be changed because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message tonight is A Prayer for the Forsaken. As I said, the author is writing Psalm 74 out of the unimaginable, unthinkable disaster that has fallen on Judah. They have been utterly destroyed and taken away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It's a day of disaster unparalleled in the history of God's people. And not only, you see, is Judah destroyed as a nation... But the entire enterprise of God's redemptive purposes seems to have come to an end. The whole thing. There's no king established on God's holy hill. There's no temple there in Mount Zion. There are no prophets to proclaim God's word. There are almost no people left in the land. The entire Things seems to be over. It seems like the curtain of God's judgment has fallen. The land has become Ichabod. The glory is gone. And all that God had promised from the time of Abraham, everything that he had accomplished uh, through Moses and Joshua, the whole enterprise of God's redemptive purposes through Israel seems to have come to a cataclysmic, irredeemable end. Judah has been forsaken by her God. They've been dragged away into exile. And the author is writing out of just the stunning bewilderment and devastation of that experience. Times of disaster are often times where God's people feel abandoned. Uh, Times of, of tragedy can be times where we reflect upon our sin and we try to connect the dots. Maybe God has, has brought this illness to my child because of, uh, of, of my own wickedness in my youth. Or, or maybe my, my marriage, God has brought an end to my marriage or my spouse has, has passed uh, early because, because of my sin. Maybe, and, and maybe this is God finally doing what I feared that he would do, that, that, that he would at some point let the shoe drop. At some point, he would say, that's enough. Maybe that's what this is. Maybe God has cast us off. I think almost every Christian has had those fears, those questions. Is God punishing us for our sin? Is he, has he forsaken us? And the greatest fear in a time of tragedy can be exactly that. We can endure almost anything if we know that God is for us, but what do you do when you're faced with the tragedy and then the, the haunting question, has God abandoned us? What do you do if God forsakes you? Well, that's the question that the author of Psalm 74 is wrestling with. Well, first just note the disaster the first few verses here, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Uh, to fully understand the, the author's anguish here, we just have to, to uh, sort of put on a Jewish mindset. Just imagine uh, living in uh, this, this time, 586 B.C. is is when the temple was destroyed finally. And and so you're a a Jew who has now, you know, over a thousand years of history of of being a people with God. 
And there are two fundamental facts that are ingrained in your mind as a Jewish man or a woman. The first fact being that you, as an Israelite, you are God's own chosen nation. That you belong to God as no other nation of the world can claim. That God had specifically chosen you through Abraham to be his own possession, his congregation. Notice, remember your congregation. Those that you've redeemed, you've purchased. God purchased his people when he brought them out of Egypt. He purchased them through the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And so the, 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 the Israelite people, the Jewish people, just had this conviction that the living God of heaven, the one true God, was actually uniquely their God. He was their God by covenant. He was their God by blood. He was their God by his own sovereign and eternal purpose. He had made that clear to them, that he had not chosen them because there was something special about them. He says, no, no, you're a stiff-necked people, a stubborn and rebellious people. He chose them because he determined to set his love on them. And so God had made them his people. He told them way back in in Genesis 17, you can read uh, God's words to Father Abraham, where God establishes his covenant. Let me read from Genesis 17, verse 7. And eight, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations to be an everlasting covenant. And here's the, here's the promise, here's the jewel, to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be your God. And, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's what a, a Jewish person living at that time believes. That's what they're convinced is true. And, it, and it's been proven true, true through all the history of Israel, all the times that God had, had interceded and uh, and helped and saved Israel from their own foolishness and sin. And yet God was acting as their God. God was for them. God was with them. And the evidence of these things would be found in the tabernacle first and later the temple. Because there, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, God dwelt among His people. All the blessings of God flowed to them from that most holy place. There God opened, in a sense, a doorway to heaven because they could go to the temple and they could bring their sacrifices and they, could, they would know that God was there and God heard them and received their sacrifices and forgave their sins. No matter what, you, what sin was clinging to you, right? When you went to that temple and you sacrificed the lamb and you saw the blood being splashed against the altar, you knew Right? You had the assurance of the Word of God. You knew that God Himself was accepting that blood for your sin. And you could go home forgiven, at peace with God. The temple, you see, was, was well, it was everything. God had told them that, that if, if they would direct their prayers to the temple, that He would hear them. If they were in a time of distress, if they would turn to the temple and pray, confessing their sin, God would hear them and rescue them. And so the temple was the focal point. Of, of their life, their, their life with God. It's, it's why they would sing psalms like Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, 
O Lord of hosts. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And so this was this is their life. They were God's people. God was in their presence. God had given them the temple and all the sacrifices. And they were in God's holy land, the, the land that God had given to them, the land of Canaan. It was, it was God's gift to them. It was God's inheritance given to them. And, and God had promised Abraham it would be given to them throughout all their generations. And that land, you see, then was not just their physical home. It was the evidence of their identity, of who they were. This is what it meant to be an Israelite. It meant that you were in God's holy land as God's holy people. And that you were in the kingdom of God on earth. It was your identity. And so with all that true, you can imagine the, the stunning, unthinkable devastation of July 18, 586, when, when the, the forces of the Babylonians come in and they don't just sack the city, they, they destroy the temple, completely destroy the temple. And they, and they take all the people away. Everything is lost. You can, and you, can, you read in Psalm 74, the, the writer invites God to come and see what's, what's actually happened. Direct your steps, God, to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything, everything in the sanctuary. There's nothing left. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They're standing in the holy of holies, and they're ripping apart the Ark of the Covenant, and they're carrying it away, and they're setting up their own sign, their, their banners of war. And they're, they're, they're like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. Just everything is ripped to shreds. Nothing's left. And when they had broken it all down, they set it on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name and bringing it down to the ground. And they'd done that to the temple and to, to every great house, the king's house, all the great houses in Jerusalem. Everything is destroyed. And so you can... Imagine the, the spiritual devastation of this. You see their identity, uh, the, what they had assumed to be true about, about God and, and what it meant to belong to God. It, it seems to be all be buried under the ashes of the temple, under the rubble of Jerusalem. God has clearly abandoned them, cast them off. The temple's gone. The enemy has raised their banners. Judah is finished. Israel has been gone for years already. The whole enterprise has come to an end. And the question then, secondly, the dilemma, the question is, what does it mean? What does this mean? How do you make sense of this? Is this temporary discipline or is this eternal judgment? They had experienced God's temporary discipline many times throughout their history where God would give them over to the enemies and the Philistines would suddenly be just wreaking havoc and they would cry out to the Lord and God would deliver them. But this doesn't feel like those times. This is too severe, it's too complete, it's total. So what is this? Is this eternal judgment? That's the question of verse 1. Why do you cast us off forever? How long is this going to go on? And, and, and he says in, in verse, uh, verse 9, there are no longer any prophet. There's no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. 
Nobody knows how long this is going to be. God isn't speaking to them. It's one of the greatest tragedies. How do you get answers from God if there are no prophets in the land? There's no one to say, thus saith the Lord. No matter how hard you look, no one has the Spirit of God, and no one can speak for God. He's turned his face away. He, he's, he's silent. God is not talking to them. And the question is, how long, God? How long, verse 10, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Does evil win? Does the devil triumph? What's, how do we interpret this? Why aren't, you, why aren't you doing something? Verse 10, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. You see, the psalmist recognizes that whatever is happening, it's not a failure uh, because of the power of God. God has a mighty right hand. And in verses 12 through 17, he confesses, I, I still believe in, a, in, the, in the power of God. These things have not happened because God is unable to help. It's the common answer given today when some great disaster happens and, and people will say, uh, they'll try to answer for God. Well, God cares. He, he wishes it weren't this way, but he's bound himself to, to man's free will and, and so he's powerless to help. Well, the writer will have none of that silliness. That's not what's going on here. His God is a king from of old, a, a king who works salvation in the midst of the earth. He divided the sea by his might. Remember, this is the God who opened up the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry ground. Uh, this, this is the God who broke the head of the sea monsters on the water. He's dealt with evil before. The sea is the place of chaos and, and, and evil, and, and God's conquered that. This is the God who split open springs and brooks in the desert. This is the God who owns the day and the night. He fixed all the boundaries of the earth. He's made the summer and the winter. The problem is not that Israel's God is too small. It's not that he's lacking in power. The problem is he's turned away. And the writer doesn't know where to go from here. It's interesting that he doesn't ask, why has this happened to us? He knows why it's happened. He, he asks, why, why do you cast us off forever? The, the forever being the critical thing. He knows why this has happened. It's, it's happened because of Judah's sin. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 36 with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And the writer there tells us exactly why this has happened. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And we'll read verse 11 through 17. Zedekiah, that was the, the, the king, son of the last of David's line, was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of God, of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. 
The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. That's why it's happened. It's exactly as God promised what happened in the law of Moses, right? The covenant that he made with them through Moses, that if they would obey him, he would bless them. And if they disobeyed and did not repent, then he would destroy them and drive them from the land. And so here the writer sits in the rubble of God's enterprise and, and struggling to figure out what is this? Is this, again, is this temporary discipline or is this final judgment? And, and you see the problem he faces is that in the past, God had assured them if they would go to the temple and confess their sin and offer the sacrifices, God would forgive them. But what do you do when, there, when there's no temple? You can't just start a fire in the backyard. God had made a way, and now God has closed the way. And so how do you atone for your sin when there's no place for atonement? And in the past, when they needed to hear a word from the Lord, they would go to the prophets. And they would ask the prophets, and the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. But now there are no prophets. They've all been killed or dragged into captivity. You see, every, every avenue where you might look to for hope and help, it's closed. The door's closed. The temple's gone. The prophets are no more. And, and so I, I hope you can sense the, the helplessness and hopelessness, the despair. You see, what do you do when you need to be saved and you know you need to be forgiven and the door to salvation is closed and the path to forgiveness is shut to you? you it's not possible anymore. That's what the wicked will experience on the day of judgment. Jude tells us that in the day of judgment, Jesus will come and convict all the ungodly for all their ungodliness. They will know why they're going to hell, and they will want nothing more at that moment than to be saved, to be forgiven, and the door will be closed. The time for salvation has passed. There won't be any way to be forgiven. And the author is, is, is wrestling, is, is that where Judah is now? Is that what happened to them? Where do you go now? If you're, if you're a citizen of Judah, uh, where do you go to be forgiven? Where do you go for salvation? Everything seems dark. Where is the light? Where, where can hope be found? Maybe you've experienced that in your own life, that there is a time of, of great sin and your, your own conscience was tormenting you, and the devil was accusing you, the law was accusing you, and you just felt absolute despair. How could God possibly, possibly forgive you for what you had done? Well, the author here shows us where to go. Finally, the appeal. You see, the, the psalmist, throughout the psalm, appeals to God with boldness. He begins in verse 1, remember your congregation, which you have purchased from of old. 
Verse 2, remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Verse 18, remember how the enemy scoffs and foolish people revile your name. Verse 20, have regard for the covenant. You see, in, in spite of all Judah's sin and in spite of all the evidence of God's anger against them, there is still a place of appeal, a place to go. In spite of the fact that they absolutely deserve eternal condemnation, he doesn't settle for that. There's a reason for hope. There are things that, that, that he can appeal to and, in a sense, go to God with things in his hand that he can come to God and say, God, on, on the basis of these things, I'm, a, I'm, I'm calling you to act to save us. It's very audacious. It's very bold. And he appeals, you see, to two things, God's name and God's covenant. Throughout the psalm, he's, he's, he's appealing to the honor of God's name. Uh, verse 18 and 21, uh, 22. Remember how the enemy scoffs. that They're reviling your name. And they've destroyed your people and your temple. Your congregation. You see, God has attached his name to the welfare of his people, to the salvation of his people. And, and Daniel, 70 years later, would appeal explicitly to this fact in his prayer of confession as he prays for God to bring them out of exile. Daniel 9, verse 18. Listen, he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This isn't just about the welfare of, of men and women of Judah. This is about the welfare, welfare of God's own holy name, the honor of God's name. It's about the most significant, meaningful, weighty, ultimately glorious thing in the world. And so... The writer here appeals then, God, we're your people. Now, how can he still say that when it's so evident that God wants nothing to do with them, when God seems to have turned away from them? The reason he can say that is because of the second thing, God has made a covenant with them. He's made a covenant with Abraham, have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the covenant. Covenants matter. Covenants are the way that God deals with people. He makes promises to them, and he seals those promises with his word. So when he made a covenant with Abraham, if you remember, God, uh, God cut that covenant in blood. Genesis 15, Dave Veltors last week mentioned it. Genesis 15, you can read about it, where God uh, puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and Abraham has a vision where he sees Parts of animals, the animals that have been cut in two and laid on each side of a path. That's how you would cut a covenant. And then members would walk through that path with bloody bodies on both sides. And by walking through that path, they would be saying, may this be done to me if I fail to keep the promises and obligations of this covenant. And so each member who makes the covenant would walk through that path and they would cut the covenant. The, the miracle of Genesis 15 is that God makes a covenant and God alone walks through. Abraham just watches. God takes all the obligations of both sides. 
God, you see, makes promises to Abraham, and all the weight, all the obligations fall upon God. You see, it's a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace. Even if Israel will fail, and they will fail, God promises to Abraham, I will still be your God, and I will still be the God of your descendants. You see, the beauty of this appeal is that the writer understands that even though Israel fully deserves to be condemned under the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, there's another covenant that stands, a covenant of grace. And even though Judah is, is, is suffering judgment for her sin, because that's precisely what God promised to do to them in the Mosaic law, right? Obey me and live, disobey me and die, disobey and die. That's the fundamental principle of the Mosaic law. But you see, the Mosaic law can't fix the problem. As we read in 2 Chronicles 36, there's no remedy for people who love evil, who love wickedness, who love to sin. There's no remedy in the Mosaic law. But praise God, there's a remedy in the covenant of grace. You see, in the covenant of grace, God makes promises not on the basis of Israel's obedience. Abram was not required to do anything to receive the blessings of the covenant except believe them. Receive them by faith. And so where there is no remedy in the law, there is a glorious remedy in the covenant of grace. I love what Paul says in Romans 8, 3. What the law could not do, God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. You see, that's the gospel. Jesus is God's remedy for people like us. People who ruin our lives hopelessly over and over again if we're left to ourselves. And there's no hope or help for us in the law. And the problem with religion is that it sends you constantly to the law. Do better, do more, try harder. Don't you know the Ten Commandments? It says, it says don't do that. Don't you understand what's going to happen to you if you keep doing that? And, and preachers all over will, will try to encourage their people in holiness that way. Well, it's impossible all, all the law can do is show us, and Paul says it's good. Of course it's good. I don't want to be, a, a, we, we don't want to be lying, steving, feeling, you know, um, adulterous people. And yet that's where our heart goes. And there's no help in the law for us. But there's a place of hope and redemption for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. No matter how great our sin, no matter how stubborn our rebellion, there's a place where we can go to be forgiven and rescued and restored. If, if the writer who's standing in the midst of the rubble of Jerusalem can still believe that God would be for him, then maybe you're standing in, in the rubble of your life, but you can absolutely be sure that God is for you. There is a way that is still open to you. It's the covenant of grace. You see, Jesus stands for us, friends, as that covenant that can't be broken. He's the temple that will never be torn down. And we can always come to God through Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus makes this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says you will not be abandoned. You'll not be forsaken. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He's writing about how hard, 
this, this missionary work is. And, and he writes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Never forsaken. How can you be sure? Because God has attached the honor of his own name to your salvation, to the salvation of his church. And God will never let his honor be lost. And God has made a covenant with you in Jesus Christ. If you've come to Jesus Christ confessing your sin and in faith, God has made a covenant with you sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ and he will never ever break that covenant and God promises, I will be your God. I will be your God. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And he says it that way to highlight the fact that everyone who believes in him will receive glory and honor when Christ comes again. Friends, that's the gospel. Take, take that truth to your heart. Take it into your home. Take it into your marriage. Take it, into, take, take it to uh, the places where you struggle with sin. Take it to the place where you struggle with doubt, where you fear that maybe God has abandoned you. And then, and then believe it and share it. It's wonderful news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's such a good thing to hear that in spite of the ruin that we could make of our life and all the rubble that we deserve under the law, the law of Moses, I thank you, O oh Father, that you've opened a way for, for us to receive nothing but mercy and grace and love in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, so many of us live with fear that one day the shoe will drop, that one day judgment will come. One day the sentence uh, will be delivered that we've been found lacking. And that you are going to now bring upon our heads the fruit of all of our sin, all that we deserve. And we can be in bondage to that fear and that guilt and that shame. And Father, I, I thank you that you invite us to put that away once and for all. Once and forever. Because you've given us a Savior in Jesus Christ who promises that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. And that you will never deal with us according to our sin. That you will never reward us according to our iniquity. You will never forsake us. But that in Jesus we are invited in, into the most inner holy sanctuary of God and into the arms of God. We're invited to live as, as free people, free from condemnation, free from sin and death and guilt and shame. Oh God, please, by your spirit, oh God, make us alive and awake to these things in a way that gives us joy and peace in believing. May the God of all hope then fill us with that joy and peace as we believe in your promise to us in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to stand and celebrate the wonder of the gospel together, singing, Yet not I, but Christ in me.
God's people said. Amen. Amen. After the benediction, we'll close. May the grace of Christ our Savior receive.